Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Uh, hello, lovely pod people, and welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia, and I'm with the delightful Peter Lewis, who is executive director of Essential Media. And sorry, guys, we are actually a day late with our polling podcast. So I just want to apologise for our tardiness up front. It's been a very hectic week uh, and uh, and we've just, yeah, slipped behind with our recording by a day. I blame Peter Lewis. I thought there was more um, more COVID-related um explanations for this. But anyway, <laughs> they might have been listening to the last yes. podcast and realised that issue wasn't dead. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Anyway, let's crack on. Uh, so uh, we want to, as we always do in these conversations, uh, reflect on the latest Guardian Essential Poll numbers. But I think, uh, Peter, we want to have a broader chat as well, don't we, about uh, what's just happened, mm. given that we've lived through a pretty interesting chapter over the last uh, few months, albeit with a pretty depressing ending to the chapter. So uh, let's sort of, let's just bounce off that. Okay. So it turns out that the polls were right. I know. I was in this strange position where I was hoping in my heart of hearts that the entire polling industry would have a catastrophic failure on Saturday, <laughs> but it wasn't to be. So I, I emerged with my professional dignity somewhat intact, but feeling very sorry about what's transpired for the nation. Um, I do think, you know, in a way, the polls ended up softening the blow on the night. I think most people, particularly the wonderful First Nations leaders of the campaign were braced for it. Um, I wonder if it had just been a bolt from the blue, whether it would have been a more traumatic experience. On the other side, I wonder whether, and we discussed this last time, whether polls create their own sense of reality. But I think I think it was clearly monitoring something that went very, very wrong with the engagement with people outside the major capital cities. You know, that's, that, that's really the story at the end of it, isn't it? Mm, yeah. And it's, it's sort of... Um it's interesting. Our our uh, Guardian Essential numbers were sl a bit more favourable to yes than uh, some of the other polls, but I don't think anyone had a you know anyone had a massive fail. Uh, again, in our numbers, uh, no pulled ahead of uh, the yes uh, camp in August. 
again, if we sort of look at our numbers, uh, recent numbers, we saw, you and I saw there was a late rally for yes, and we had a chat about mm. that on an episode uh, a couple of weeks ago. Margin of error rally. Maybe it was a blip. You know, that's the thing that we always say, within 3%, it, it is just noise. So the, the long-term trend of our poll, like most, was a rising no and a declining yes. And, you know, a quite significant when you think at the start of the year it was 65-35. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, a complete, yeah, a complete shift from one side of an argument to another. Um, now, we'll get to uh, the broader themes in a minute, uh, but sticking with the latest survey, uh, the, we basically assumed, I guess, you and I, that uh, that the a voice referendum would fail. We were interested in trying to project forward past that eventuality to consider ways forward for reconciliation. Uh, so uh, Indigenous leaders at the moment are having a week of mourning for the referendum result, and I'm in Canberra obviously recording this week. Parliament is sitting. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious that the Prime Minister wants to wait for guidance from the Indigenous leadership before he engages in a policy reset uh, post-voice. So let's just share with the listeners what do our numbers say about uh, how Australians are viewing the road ahead. Uh, I think mm. you know. Let's let's start. I guess with the with the point that uh, people clearly get the disadvantage or or problems are a thing. Like uh, we've got a sixty percent or thereabouts sort of agreement with that, right? Yeah, sixty two. 11% disagree with that statement that the government should continue to work with First Nations communities to find solutions to the issues they face. I suspect there are now people that just go no straight down the line with 27% sort of shrugging their shoulders. I think on the other things that are on the agenda, though, and again, I think we, I think you and I are both very conscious we are not talking for First Nations leaders who will make their own judgment mm. on the correct path forward after this, but... Um, what the public in the immediate aftermath or even the preemptive <laughs> prelude, because we were asking this before it went down, but we were saying in the event it went down, what would you like to see? Basically, yep. the support for treaty, truth, voice um, not enshrined in the constitution or recognition without a voice, they're all about the same level as the yes vote, like high 30s. Yeah. Um, there are about, there are fewer people that oppose it, but there are just so many, like more than a third, just sitting in the middle without a view. And I think in a way, the story of the referendum, like there is the hard nose and there is the angry campaign. Yep. I don't think it turned everyone into angry, hard nose. It mm. just confused them and disengage them because why would you want to enter into a nasty, you know, fight like this? So, Another number that really stood out to me this week, Catherine, was only 25% of people said they ended up knowing more about First Nations history yeah. than they did at the start. And I found that probably the most distressing or depressing result of the whole poll because for all that effort, and, you know, we worked really hard um, as a progressive movement to reach people. It didn't, It most people were unmoved. And I think that's mm. the bit that, you know, 
it's not just about, often people think politics is about sort of engaging people on issue, but there is also just a strategy of disengaging people and pushing them out of the debate. And if people end up unmoved by something as fundamental as our history, then there's something bigger going on. Yeah, well, something bigger going on is really the perfect segue. Uh, We need to tell the listeners again that you were a Yes 23 partner uh, and uh, with that hat on, you conducted uh, a bunch of town halls or virtual town yeah. halls. Anyway, I'll let you explain yeah. the sort of uh, how how these were constituted. This was sort of adjacent to the referendum, really, to understand uh, how people were, were thinking about the issues. Uh, you've also written very persuasively this week in your column that uh, the referendum, no to the voice, is is not only a setback for reconciliation and and something horrible that First uh, Nations people are absorbing, it's also at one level a repudiation of civil society, which is sort of an interesting thing that we can chat about in a minute. But let's start with the town mm. halls. What what were you learning through these uh, conversations? Yeah. So what we did was um, design effectively a one hour show that would take the participants on a journey that started with an emotional connection through a reading and a reflection on the statement, um, would then go into a Civics 101 lesson with some really simple explanations of what the whole thing was about, would give room for questions and objections, and then would have a path forward. And it was it was supported by Yes 23 and a number of MPs from across the divide as a great way of having that first conversation with constituents that wanted to be in the room. And it it it, it ballooned and it was a very successful model, professionally hosted. We had some great um both First Nations and non-Indigenous hosts that would run it and was effectively a panel with different people playing different roles. Um, what we learnt was that people, when given the information, were totally comfortable then to go out and um, have conversations more broadly and the commitment to the campaign that we got from those events. And like I say, we did over 60 and some of them were organisations doing internal staff. The biggest was probably down in Indi with Helen Haynes's voices, the Indi movement, where there was 400 in the Wodonga box and 600 online and they were all sort of feeding into the conversation. It worked really well, although then I looked at the numbers and Indi went down quite um, substantially too. So it wasn't a persuasion piece. It was the education piece and the model conversation piece. And, you know, I love the idea of a town hall, but a town hall takes the motivation to get people in the room to turn up. But once you get them there, make it a delightful experience and give them something to do. And I think that is one of the ways that we can look at engagement that's different to just putting more stuff into the information ecosystem, whether it's an email or on social media or clicktivism or whatever, I think people are crowded out. And that was one of the things we learned. So that was our contribution. And it was a great privilege to work with some fantastic, um, particularly, I just want to um, shout out to Jade Ritchie, who was just an amazing um, driver of it. She was one of those, not, not the key campaign people, but she did quite a bit of media in the end, but she was just a remarkable advocate in that in, in those forums, just a star. Mm. Um, mm. So my analysis is, and I, again, I don't want to get into Monday experts on what the campaign did well or not well. I think that's not at this stage a role for someone like me. But I did want to reflect on just the stark truth that every church, every union, most employer bodies, every NGO, every not-for-profit, every major sporting association said they were for yes, 
and the weight of the broad consensus of what we used to call our civil society was no match for the algorithms of division and fear, which elevated a bunch of political hucksters into the centre and totally smashed the consensus. Now, I think at the moment, a lot of the commentary, particularly coming from the yes side, is almost this gaslighting, look what you made us do, that there was something bad about putting this proposition forward. The reality is that it wasn't a persuasion campaign. It wasn't a campaign between two sides. It was, I think, ultimately a campaign of disinformation, division and fear on the no case. And I don't think that's overemphasising it. Um, Guardian did a lot of really good research to sort of pull down the lid on how that campaign was working. Yes wasn't doing that. Yes was trying to do something that was more productive and they got smashed, right? So it says to me, if I look back, what could have been done differently? It almost feels like the disinformation became the virus. Civil society's role was actually to inoculate and too many organisations thought that just putting um, a logo on a media release or telling their staff, I'll go and find the information yourself was enough. And I think it was actually much more probably earlier an inoculation process required for members and communities outside. And I think a lot of those organisations will probably feel okay about themselves because they had the official resolution. But I don't think anyone can look themselves in the mirror and said they did all they can, apart from the 50,000 volunteers who are actually going out door knocking every weekend. Like, I think it was interesting. The, they, they, the campaign built a remarkable movement of individuals, but I thought the institutional support fell down somewhat. Yeah, I mean, and this is a this is sort of in the wash-up. Um, this has been a common reflection that the sort of when it came to it, the institutional muscle was not as was not as present as uh, as people had hoped. But but and it even became a negative. So even you had the remarkable <laughs> scenario where Qantas was backing in yes, good on him. And Peter Dutton was standing up there saying that shows that this is a woke elite agenda at the very same time as he's backing in Qantas on opposing the IR laws. Like mm. it was, mm. so in a way, the the broad consensus played into the idea that this was an elite agenda rather than a grassroots. And again, another piece of disinformation that we didn't have the wit, will or wherewithal to respond to. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because uh, you know, there there is a lot of uh, focus, well, certainly through the campaign and in the wash up about about you know sort of community versus the algorithm, for want of a better term, right? Mm. And that's completely uh, legitimate because the, these are the times we live in. It is community versus the algorithm in so many ways and in so many facets of life. And by the algorithm, I mean. The, the algorithms on social media that favour negativity and conflict and division, just so I'm clear for folks who don't necessarily understand the this lingo that we can sling about. So it's sort of, to me, it's kind of fascinating because it's sort of, I don't know, the cycles on this seem to wax and wane. There was a very similar dynamic uh, around, although in a more conventional political campaign, obviously in that election where the the alleged death tax was was sort of alive in the in the sort of social media landscape. A lot of misinformation about that. A lot of the, and those messages reached a lot of people. Uh, so we see, we seem to have what I'm trying to say is we seem to have cycles where. Mm. 
uh, where the algorithm wins, we seem to have cycles where the algorithm doesn't win. It's kind of, it's just curious. Yeah. Um, and look, when we say the algorithm, we're also saying that the reason it does that is there is a business model to keep people online longer. And one of the other reflections is that too much of civil society, I think, then do their community organising through the algorithm, which just reinforces both mm. the power mm. and the flaws in that system that turns everyone into a little community of, of one. So the, the guys that do a lot of really interesting research into this at QUT, the team led by um, Axel Bruns, will tell you that things will flow around social media, but it's when it then gets picked up by mainstream media and reported and then gets reamplified on social media that it really becomes yeah, viral. I and I think yeah. we shouldn't discount the role that... Um, the Murdoch press played in giving legitimacy and actually generating a lot of the things that ended up discombobulating, like the ideas of, you know, the 38-page statement which had all this fine print so you couldn't agree on it or, you know, the fact that they, even if they report on something crazy Hanson said about um, having to pay to go for the beach, once it was in the media, then it starts having this sense of legitimacy and it gets more and more power. So, I don't know. There's one thing that says the progressive movement needs to just do it better than the other side. I've always thought, despite what we thought initially with social media and Obama and and the Arab Spring, it's actually an inherently divisive conservative medium. And I just, my view is we need to find ways of doing progressive politics outside the algorithm rather than through it. But, you know, that's a bigger, bigger project. Well, a bigger project indeed, but it's sort of, it's it's interesting to sort of think of a case study in the, in the, in the project, in the bigger project, if we think about the dynamic at the last federal election mm. and the dynamic that's building up, been building up over several elections, which is the sort of rise of the, of the independence movement. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, they... Uh, you know, the teal independents obviously, um, you know, injected themselves into the public domain via a lot of social media. I'm not saying social media was irrelevant, but... But also one-on-one on the ground organising, you know, they've got... Well, that's, yeah. well, that's the thing, yeah. There, there were, there were organisational models there that I think, you know, I remember talking to people in the immediate washout of the election and I think uh, people viewed the kind of uh, on-ground organising models as being the sort of thing that closed the deal. And I've also also seen some commentary around, which is quite interesting, because obviously, if we look at the referendum results, if we look at who voted yes and no, and where they did that, uh, there was there was uh, it's a scale of support. It's not uniform, but basically, the teal seats voted yes. I've seen some of the teal independents saying, "Well, part of the reason that uh, people voted yes in areas that were previously strongholds of the Liberal Party." was because we we organised, we built it out, we built a structure out, we mm. combated disinformation and misinformation yeah. at the local level. Likewise, our, our poll says 67% of union members voted yes. That's not because they are freaks. It's because the unions were doing direct engagement, running phone banks, like not just putting a meme out or a media release out, but actually doing the work of effective inoculation. There's an interesting stat we didn't put out this week just because I didn't have the wit to do it before we went live, Catherine, but um, you know how we do that economic self-identification from comfortable to struggling? Mm. On the mm -hmm. vote, financially comfortable, 56-34, yes, 
10 wouldn't say. Financially secure, 39 yes, 54 no. Financially struggling, 32 yes, 57 no. Mm. Serious financial difficulty, 28 yes, 60% no. Mm. So, and again, maybe people in more wealthy enclaves had the time to be organising, but that that tells you a story as well, doesn't it? Well, it tells yeah, at, at a couple of levels. A number of stories, probably. <laughs> a couple of yeah, at least a couple of levels. I think it's sort of uh, it's quite interesting because the other thing that people reported consistently, and if you're a regular on the show, you'll know that I was missing for a few months, really, at the start of this year. So I was out in the community much more than uh, than I normally would be because I wasn't at work for fourteen hours a day. Uh, and it was sort of really obvious to me uh, from that period how head down people were, how very uh, uh, for for absolutely valid reasons, how uh, how enclosed we were in our immediate problems at this point in time. And for most people, obviously, with inflation where it is. Cost of living's a major thing. There's also this backing anxiety, when, and it's not a bad segue to mm. Israel-Palestine, which we're going to go to in a sec. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot of anxiety in the world, referred anxiety in the world, which sort of, you know, kind of gets people's hackles up and, and, and that leads to a kind of news fatigue. People don't want to involve themselves in this constant sort of car crash of negativity and anxiety. So it's kind of interesting. I think, you know, the, the Yes campaigners report that there were a lot of people that, who, were, who were very hard to reach mm. and they were hard to reach not because they were necessarily opposed to the proposal or hostile to Indigenous Australians, but because they just simply did not have the bandwidth to basically take a complicated proposition on and they had mm. sort of got through the vibe that the proposition was complicated. It actually wasn't. And all they had was, you know, scrolling through their phone and as soon as they, you know, they, they would be getting the confusion. Yes. They would be getting the confusion in their feeds. Well, and, and the conflict, which for, for, a, for a whole bunch of voters is, you know, just an automatic turn off. But anyway, we're on the clock, my friend, so let's go mm. to Israel-Palestine, which we kind of set up there. Yes. Almost like we planned this, Peter. Uh, we kind of set that up. Uh, by just talking about the anxiety that is just around in the zeitgeist at the moment. Uh, we asked some questions uh, of our respondents mm. in this fortnightly cycle just about their perceptions of that conflict uh, and, uh, you know, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that, uh, the sort of tin tacks of it. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, that conflict continues at at this point, unfortunately, sadly, gut-wrenchingly, is continuing to escalate rather than de-escalate, although uh, obviously there's a lot of sort of geopolitical levers now in play to try and make sure that this doesn't get completely out of control. But anyway, what are our folks mm. making of all yeah. this? And I'll preempt with this, like, I don't like running a domestic political sp scoreboard. The last thing I want to do is write a global <laughs> geopolitical scoreboard, but we were interested in just getting a top-line reaction because the images have been so confronting mm. um, and the um, the rhetoric has been so overheated even in the last week. Um, so we asked two questions. The first was 
which was closer to somebody's view, um, Australia sh- should provide assistance to Israel, Australia should provide assistance to Palestine, or Austra- Australia should stay out of the conflict entirely. We left it pretty open-ended, so assistance could mean financial. I got it. Yeah. We, did, we didn't. Yeah. But if you were consuming the, the, the dominant narrative last week, I think you would have thought it would be about 80-20. It was 23 to provide assistance to Israel, 13 provide assistance to Palestine, but the vast majority, 64, effectively saying, let's exercise some restraint. Mm. And it was really interesting that almost restraint was a no-go zone at the end of last week. Mm, in politics. And it made me wonder, like, what is what is the opposite? Like, what is, if you don't exercise restraint, are you saying be disproportionate because... Do, do your worst. Yeah, so, do your worst. Um, I'm just seeing if there was anything that stood out, like coalition voters, 34 rather than 21 Labor voters on the... not. I'm not going to say on the Israel side, but wanting something more active in terms of the intervention and older people as well. Um, then mm. we asked some more sober questions, which... Um, were statements, um, and I'll just give you the overall agree to each of these. Or um, I'm concerned about the risk of the escalation globally. We're at 75, with only about eight percent disagreeing with that proposition. I'm concerned the war could trigger hostility between Palestinian and Israeli communities in Australia. Um, we're in the mid 60s on that one. The Israeli response is proportionate. It was. And this was before, obviously, what's happened yeah. over the last 24 hours. Um, yeah. 42, 18, not. And I'm satisfied with the Australian government's response. It was 37, yes, 19, no, 44, unsure. So, not sure. Mm. You know, it does feel like there is this imperative to drag us into the centre of this at the moment. I don't quite know how to to process this myself. The numbers in front of me says most Australians are probably feeling similar to me, actually. Yeah, well, I think that's right. And it sort of ties back into that sort of, uh, you know, what we were talking about a minute ago in terms of people's empathy envelope and to the the extent to which they're overloaded by scary stuff in the world. Uh, And, you know, that's completely understandable that the sort of broad impulse among uh, our respondents would be, uh, you know, dare we say, bit of restraint and also a little bit of not isolationism because that makes it sound nuts uh, in terms of like sort of it makes it sound like it's a real thing, you know, to kind of pull the shutters down. We've got no interest in this conflict. But, you know, the sort of dominant themes are let's stay out of it. Let's not lose our minds. Uh, We're worried about sort of global escalation. We're also worried about tension in diaspora diaspora communities in Australia. And that to me seems an entirely rational response to events. Mm. And, you know, if you were trying to define what leadership would be, it would surely be around trying to anchor that sobriety rather than trying to whip it up into the next political cage fight. Um, well, this is, yeah, this is the thing looking forward. And obviously we'll, you know, we'll think about ways to measure this, obviously you and I, in mm. terms of what we, what we look at going forward. But, this, you know, there's sort of so many landing points after the defeat of the referendum. It's kind of like it's whether or not we've we've sort of just come out of a cycle of escalation. Just call it that in terms of politics, like this sort of zero sum death match type politics, because, you know, we had a break from all that in Australia for a period of time. 
We've sort of been creeping back into that zone again. The referendum kind of really was an accelerant for all of that. Mm. Now I think it'll be really interesting, actually, to watch how sort of politics comes off the other side of that, whether Mm. uh, Peter Dutton sees sort of political uh, opportunity in maintaining those, that sort of atmospherics, or whether he pivots and starts to dial it down as well. Anyway, I don't know the answer to the question, but we'll obviously be be uh, be watching very closely. Thank you so much to you guys for listening. As always, uh, Peter, I really appreciate your company and sharing, rating, review and all of that stuff that you guys normally do. Uh, apologies again for my voice. I do have a light lurgy, so it's been a bit of a struggle. But anyway, I think we've gotten there. So uh, thank you for thank you for bearing with me. Thank you, as always, to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. We will be back very soon. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.